This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Dubal, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, what is on the show today? Well, we're going to get the latest on tropical cyclone Lola. And of course, coronial inquest gets underway in New Zealand into the 2019 terrorist attacks. And it's a sad day for wildlife lovers in the Pacific. For more on these stories, stay tuned. Again, I'm Aggie Dubal, and this is Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Vanuatu is on high alert today as the fierce cyclone Lola moves over the country. Damaging winds, heavy rainfall, mudslides and flash flooding are all possible risks of the Category 4 system with average speeds of 185 kilometres per hour at the centre and gusts reaching 260 kilometres per hour. Reports of damage in the north of Vanuatu, uh, but communications seem to be largely down. So we're joined this morning by Ralph Regan-Vanu, who is the Minister for Climate Change and Disaster Management. Uh, he is on the line from Port Vila with that. I say good morning. Good morning, Aggie. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you could just literally give us a brief uh, description of the situation right now. What is the latest that we know about Lola? Lola, the latest um, information has just been put out by the Department of uh, Meteorology at 5 a.m. this morning. And it's uh, still moving south-southwest. It's right in the middle of Vanuatu right now. Um, it's been downgraded to Category 3, but uh, remember that Category 3 is still destructive hurricane force winds. And the problem is it's going very slowly. So it started um, yesterday to the east of um, Pentecost Island as a Category 5. It went down to Category 4 and Category 3, but it's been moving so slowly that it's just gone over Pentecost uh, in the evening. And this morning was out. It's out in the sea between Pentecost and Malakula. So this is a very small uh, distance. And it's still hitting Malakula and coming down towards where Shefa is, which is where Port Vila is, where is I'm talking to you from. And um, <coughs> we expect it to continue south-southwest which means it won't hit Port Vila directly, but it's causing a lot of uh, gale force winds here, a lot of rain, um, I'm sure a lot of flooding and so on. Have there been any reports yet of maybe deaths or injuries uh, in regards to maybe infrastructure and in, in, in the uh, state of any of the homes there in Port Vila? Here in Port Vila, uh, not so much. Uh, we basically haven't got many reports because uh, the network's down in Sanma and Panama. That's usually the first thing that happens. All the networks go down. So just intermittent uh, incidental reports. All our crews are standing by in all the provinces for an extensive assessment as soon as the winds go down enough. We've also put a request to the France partners, which is France, Australia, New Zealand, for aerial assessments as soon as it's possible. And then we'll start to get an idea of the scale of the damage. But we expect the damage to be quite extensive and destructive because of the strength of the cyclone. It was five and then four and then three. And then particularly because of how long it's, how slow it's moving, which means, uh, for example, Pentecost has been affected all night uh, since daylight 
uh, yesterday right until uh, this morning. So we can expect uh, significant damage. Uh, what are the authorities telling people to do uh, as they, I suppose, wake up to what is happening? Well, uh, four of Vanuatu's six provinces are on red alert, which means the cyclone is imminent. You stay indoors, um, turn on your radio if you can, just stay away and stay inside and try and be as safe as possible. Do not go outside. So that's four provinces, uh, Sanma, Penama, Malampa, and Sheffa. And Sheffa is where I'm speaking from. Um, and then Tafia, which is the province down south, is blue alert, which means you, you stay prepared. You can go outside, but you just be, start getting ready. So that's the situation we are in now. Um, we expect that it'll come closer to Port Vila in the next hours. And so, uh, we are bracing here for it. We're all ready for it. We're, you know, we're in red alert. Yeah, Minister. We expect, mm, apologies. Uh, sorry, we, we expect this cyclone to affect most of the population. So, like 151,000 people is the uh, figure given out by the National Disaster Management Office right now. Minister, you know, it was only just seven months on from, you know, the twin cyclones earlier this year. I mean, what impact will this cyclone now have on this country, especially in terms of recovery? Well, you know, we've only started recovery from the twin cyclones. You know, we had a we had a state of emergency for six months from uh, March, and that just finished in September, which is last month. And now we have this Category Five cyclone, which is as you know, as as has been reported, it's uh, outside the cyclone season. The cyclone season normally starts on the first of November, so it's just really it, it's become our new reality. You know, we just. Uh, Responding, recovering, responding, recovering, and it seems like the time between response and recovery and then the next response is shortening all the time. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I mean, how concerning is this pre-season cyclone, knowing that, you know, what could it tell you about the season ahead? Yes, well, we, we have the prediction from the regional uh, meteo uh, authorities that we will be... Uh, Along with Fiji and the Cook Islands, we will receive the most cyclones this year. We were expecting them to begin after Christmas, after the new year, but to have the, a Category 5 cyclone before the commencement of cyclone season isn't very promising at all. And I think we may need to start extending the cyclone season. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost six months now, cyclone season, so it's really uh, it's not very promising for the future. Mm. Minister, look, while I have you on the line, I do understand that you are the Minister for Climate Change and Disaster Management. Now, COP28 uh, is just next month, and I know countries still seem to be a little bit deadlocked over how to design a loss and damage fund to help countries recover uh, and rebuild from climate change-driven damage. So how does Lola again stress the importance of this fund for Pacific Island countries? We are dealing with, you know, three category three plus cyclones uh, in the space of less than 12 months uh, with all the damage associated. It's beyond our capacity as, as a, you know, a recently graduated, least developed country to be able to do proper recovery and especially to build back the resilient infrastructure we need to withstand the next one. And that's what this loss and damage fund is about. And it's a, uh, it's a fund that Vanuatu suggested 30 years ago. It's taken 30 years for the world community to agree that, yes, it is something that is needed. And it's really unfortunate right now to see that uh, 
the especially the developed countries can't agree to set up a loss and damage fund under the UNFCCC process to deal uh, with loss and damage issues on the basis of the way the UNFCCC operates and the United Nations operates, which has developing countries represented as well as developed countries and other organizations to make decisions about you know, how this money is contributed and where it goes to to assist the most vulnerable like ourselves. We are in a least developed country, well, a recently graduated least developed country, but also a small island developing states, uh, listed by the United Nations as one of the most at-risk countries in the world. So we are desperately in need of this fund to help us brace ourselves for the future. And it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, not very promising to see that uh, we haven't yet agreed on the modalities of this fund, and we only have a few weeks to go. So really, um, I'm heading off to the pre-COP next week, if, I, if I'm able to get away because of this cyclone. And um, we will be trying to push very strongly to see you know, other countries agree to move forward in a way that is constructive for, for us. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, all eyes will be on that COP28 in regards to uh, the loss and damage fund. And as you've said, it's been quite a contentious issue. It's taken nearly 30 years. The cause for climate solidarity. Why do you think it's taken this long, though? What is it that uh, they're waiting for if they have not seen uh, cyclones affect countries like Vanuatu? Well, there's a lot of vested interests, right, that uh, especially the developed countries, the fossil fuel producing countries are defending in their own countries. And Australia is a classic example. Um, you know, Australia's a Pacific Island country. They can see how it affects us. They have signed up to the Boy Declaration that climate change is a greatest security threat. And yet Australia has a new fossil fuel project pipeline extending out decades in, in front of us. So it's just really an inability to respond to scientific data because of vested interest in your own country. What then, Minister, will be your message to your listeners today, to the community of Vanuatu? Sorry, I didn't get the end of your question. Uh, I was just asking what then would be your message to your community of Vanuatu this morning? Well, just, uh, you know, Stand by. We will be doing assessments. Help the government do the assessments. Let's try and get some response to the people who need it as soon as possible. And uh, we will be trying to work as quickly as possible to make sure we meet all these uh, needs that are going to arise immediately now of uh, immediate response, food, water, shelter. Uh, yes, we are, we are back in crisis mode again. So just stand by and, and help us to help you. Uh, Mr. Regan Runner, we just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Aggie. No worries. That, of course, is Ralph Regan Vanu, the Minister for Climate Change and Disaster Management. Pacific Beat. And for more, we're now joined by Sunil Ram, the spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross. So he joins us also on the line from Port Vila. With that, I say good morning, Sunil. Good morning, Aggie. How are you? Yes, uh, I'm well, thank you. Uh, but again, it is all about Cyclone Lola. What is your latest information that you have uh, on this tropical cyclone? Thank you. So, um, yeah, currently in Port Vila right now, we've been experiencing um, stronger than usual winds since last night around 8 p.m. and also some heavy rainfall as well. So we've also been in touch. Well, the last time we got in touch with our uh, provincial branches was uh, late last night. And this is in Torba 
in Malampa in Panama. So um, they have been um, telling us that there's been some extensive damage to houses as well. Uh, and also some plantations have been damaged. And um, they're also seeking shelter in um, the evacuation centres right now. Uh, Sadil, again, who should be the community's first port of call if they are experiencing any damage or casualties? Uh, No, not as yet. We haven't received any reports of casualties. Uh, Yes, no, but I'm saying if, who should the community, uh, who's, sorry, who should be the community's first port of call, though, if they are, uh, have experienced any damage or casualties? Uh, So they they are working with the provincial governments in these provinces, so they would be uh, liaising uh, directly with those provincial authorities. When do you expect that that information will be filtered through, though? Uh, so we have not been able to reach them um, since last night. So I'm assuming there would be damage to infrastructure as well. So as, as soon as network is up and running, we're able to establish contact, we'll be able to um, facilitate that. Awesome. Senor, uh, if you don't mind, taking us through the timeline of when the cyclone actually passed through the country and what's expected to happen after it passes. So uh, currently it is in Malampa, well, so currently it's passing through Panama, sorry, and will be expected to pass through Malampa province as well. Um, so we are expecting some uh, uh, severe damage because it is a Caribbean 5 cyclone, some damage to households, and as I mentioned, some damage to uh, plantations as well. And this is, of course, um, the livelihoods for, for these community members. Some of them use it for subsist- subsistence for their families, some use it for income generation. Uh, we're also looking at um, damage to water sources. Um, so, yeah, so uh, shelter and cl- access to clean and safe drinking uh, water would be an issue straight after this. Thank you, Sunil. Um, also, we understand that Red Cross is heavily involved, but they've helped to prepare communities for Cyclone Lola? Yes, they have been preparing them um, ever since we saw news of the tropical depression turning into a cyclone. So they have been mobilizing each of these provinces and they've been working um, with uh, the communities to uh, help them evacuate uh, to the evacuation centres. And I know Cyclone Lola only just came after seven months, you know, after the twin cyclones, Judy and Kevin. I know some communities haven't fully recovered. Is it going to make recovery this time, I suppose, even slower? Yes, definitely. We we will need to scale up our res- uh, response uh, straight after the Cyclone Lola because some of them, uh, as like you said, have been uh, just getting back on their feet since uh, the twin cyclones. And um, yeah, so it'll be a long road uh, back to recovery. But where you are sitting right now, Cindy, what is it looking like at the moment, though? So I'm literally um, staring out my hotel window and I'm looking at it's really overcast. The, the winds are really strong and the rain is just not stopping. Look, Sunil, we just appreciate your time this morning knowing that uh, what is happening there in Vanuatu. Uh, we just hope that you get the help if there is necessary for you guys. To, uh, and so, yeah, just appreciate your time sharing what has been happening. Thanks for having me, Maggie. Maggie. No, no worries. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> that is Sunil Ram, spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross. Well, you're listening to Pacific Beat, and we will continue to monitor Cyclone Lola in Vanuatu uh, later in the show, but we'll bring you how businesses are preparing and the weather outlook for today. But now we'll go to some other stories making news today. A coronial inquest got underway in Christchurch today into the 2019 terrorist attack on two mosques that left 51 people dead and dozens more injured. The Australian-born gunman is in prison for life, but many questions remain over an attack that shocked the world and devastated communities in New Zealand and Australia. Reporter Masoy Ford has been following proceedings from Christchurch. 
This inquest is looking at the events of March the 15th, 2019, uh, after the heavily armed Australian gunman Brenton Harrison Tarrant opened fire at Al Noor Mosque and Linwood Avenue Islamic Centre during Friday prayers and live streamed his actions as he went. So, four and a half years on, this inquest. Uh, is going to look from the start of the attack through to the very end of the emergency response and also include uh, the gunman's formal interview with police. It's a seven-week hearing and it's going to scrutinise the response of police and paramedics, the processes at Christchurch Hospital. It'll look at the coordination between emergency services and the first responders, the gunman's arrest, whether he had any help from other people uh, and whether one of Al Noor Mosque's exit doors failed to open. Then at the request of the families, the, the inquest is also uh, happy to look at the causes of death and whether any of the deaths could have been avoided if there'd been alternative medical treatment. And there are a number of questions through this inquest, David, that, that this inquest hopes to address. People really want answers. The trial didn't go ahead because the uh, gunman pleaded guilty, so there was no information to come out there. The Royal Commission was held behind behind closed doors and even though a report was released, it looked at how and why the attack occurred and, and if it could have been prevented, whereas this looks at the emergency response and whether any lessons can be learned from it. Let's take a listen now to uh, the coroner, Bridget Windley, uh, as she addressed the court today. This inquiry presents an important and critical opportunity to also look at what we may learn from this atrocity and speak for those who have lost their lives in an effort to protect the living. Doing this can be hard, confronting, distressing. It takes courage and a willingness to be open to reflection, the possibility of learning lessons and turning truth to power. This is an opportunity to consider if the response to such extraordinary events like this could be improved in the future, despite our strongest desire that we never again have to. That's Bridget Windley there, the New Zealand coroner. Mazoe, what did we hear in this first day today? Well, today there was uh, the coroner's opening address uh, and she really did seek to uh, let people know that while we were talking about 51 victims here, um, none of them were defined by what happened and each would be recognised by the inquest as a unique life that had been lost. Uh, we also heard from the first police witness uh, and there were two uh, videos that were played the, the first video was a tribute video that was played on large screens during the morning session, a tribute to the victims. And as the relatives in the room watched that, um, they were weeping. It was a really emotionally charged time. The second video was an audio-visual timeline overview um, of the events of that day, and it included um, some of the GoPro vision that the gunman filmed as he went, and the coroner gave a very uh, clear warning before that was to be played if anyone wanted to step out. There is a big emphasis here on the mental health of everybody in this inquest from uh, the survivors, victims, families, first responders, people at the hospital and so on. Um, this is going to be tough hearing over the next seven weeks and um, it certainly you get the sense that everybody wants to try and look after everybody through this process. And that's reporter Mazoe Ford there. I'm Maggie Dubon and this is Pacific Beat. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. Victorious! 
so emotional every time we go out there and you see the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Appreciate your company this morning. As we head to another story, sadly, this next story bears some bad news for wildlife lovers in the Pacific. Yes, two animal species native to the island of Guam have now been completely wiped out. The little Mariana fruit bat and the bridled white-eyed bird are among 21 species that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has deemed extinct. So to talk about the significance of this, we're joined by Dr. Ethan Link, a biologist from Montana University who has studied bird communities in the Mariana Islands. With that, I say welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's nice Appreciate to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor, for joining us. Look, firstly, do we know how this bird, the bridled white eye, uh, became extinct on the island of Guam? We do, and sadly, it's a story that has um, has played out many times on Guam. Um, so. Guam is a, it's a small island and it's native avifauna. Um, so native bird community is about 18 species. And prior to the 1950s, um, the birds were doing fairly well. So, you know, there's a fair amount of human development. There was some deforestation during World War II, um, but there were, there were healthy populations. Um, unfortunately, at some point in the 1960s, scientists started to notice that bird populations first in the south of the island and then eventually the center and finally the north um, were just absolutely crashing. It was like watching watching the birds disappear from the entire island all at once. And there was uh, a bunch of debate over what might be causing this. Uh, pesticides and introductions of other birds were, were possibilities. Um, but in, in 1987, a researcher named Julie Savage um, correctly identified the cause of this, which was uh, an introduced snake called the brown tree snake, which is in its native range found in Australia and New Guinea and outlying islands. Um, And it appears to have hitched a ride on a cargo ship sometime in World War II or shortly after and gotten established in Guam, where without native um, predators or, or, or competition, it just really quickly exploded in population to the extent to which it was falling out of trees onto power lines and causing um, power outages. And of course, Guam's birds had no experience with this predator and just were, were very quickly wiped out. Um, it's very good at climbing trees, could find nests. Um, and so, in, in fact, the bridal white eye was last seen in 1983. Uh, and the Mariana fruit bat, I think, wasn't hasn't been seen since the 70s. Um, there were a couple other extinctions on Guam around the same time, um, and other more widespread species disappeared as well. So a kind of classic case of an invasive species just really uh, wiping out um, wiping out a native species. Wow. Could you tell us a little bit about this bird? I mean, what does it look like, and uh, does it have any interesting features? Yeah, so if you're, um, your Australian listeners might be familiar with silver eyes, I think a fairly common, um, 
common bird in the countryside in Australia. It looks quite similar to that. So it has, uh, it's part of a family called the white eyes, which have about 146 species. And they're known for having this little, uh, little white ring of feathers, uh, eye ring around their eyes. They're almost all sort of a, a yellowy, yellowy olive green, um, with a little bit of gray on the head. Uh, and they're, they're quite small. Um, they're, really social so you usually encounter white eyes in in other places um different species of white eyes in these kind of large uh sort of chattering flocks um and they're just really sweet little birds they feed on nectar and and fruit and insects um and and really just liven up liven up their forest home Mm, yes, I've just sort of, uh, looked at a picture of a silver eye here, obviously in Australia. Yeah, I can see the similarity. Very pretty little birds. How significant though is this finding by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service though? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service likes to do its homework and not rush to conclusions. So in the same, uh, the same same news release where they announced the extinction of the um, the Guam population of the bridled white eye. They also held off on declaring the extinction of uh, perhaps the United States most famous, uh, probably extinct bird, the ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, and I think most most of my colleagues would say that the ivory-billed woodpecker is is definitely extinct, but there's still a few a few reports and a little bit of controversy. So they're really waiting until the the weight of evidence is just incontrovertible. In the case of the bridled white eye, uh, we we know it's been gone for a long time and it just kind of got to the point where it was it was time to make the call. Um but because of that, we know quite a bit about the consequences of its loss and as part of this community of birds that no longer exists on Guam, um, Guam really only has two native species left, and they have very small populations on an Air Force base on the north of the island where um, where basically the, the Air Force has figured out a good way to control the snakes. In the absence of birds that uh, are able to eat insects and eat berries and disperse seeds, the forests on the island have really changed. So my um, collaborator, Halder Rogers, has done a lot of amazing work showing that the loss of insectivorous birds like the bridled white eye has led to this explosion in spider populations. So it's, it's really hard to walk through the forests in Guam without brushing into a spider web. And similarly, birds that disperse seeds, which sometimes the bridled white eye did, um, have a, a really important role to play in shaping the diversity of tree species in these forests. And so without that, the forests become more homogenous and, and, and patchier. I'm interested, though, you had just said, Doctor, that it was just oh, time to <laughs> list the species as extinct. I mean, yeah, why has it taken until now just to list the species as, as extinct? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and not being a, a Fish and Wildlife Service uh, insider, I, I, I can't say for sure. But I would say in general, the the pattern is to be pretty conservative with these declarations. Um, in the same press release, there are, are many species in Hawaii, sadly, which have, have, have sort of a similar pattern of, of they've almost certainly been gone for a very long time. There haven't been sightings for a very long time, but it's very difficult to prove an extinction, as as you may know from the, the thylacine in Tasmania. It's really hard to prove the absence of something, um, and so we like to be cautious with these with these declarations because they do mean the removal of formal protection 
for the species. And that obviously has a lot of uh, policy benefits if if there's a chance. Now, you mentioned the brown tree snake that possibly was responsible for wiping out the, the species of bird. Is there any other species on Guam that are currently at risk, though? It's a good question. Um, so I mentioned there are two two of Guam's native forest species survived, uh, the island swiftlet and the um, Mariana starling. And both of these uh, both of these species managed to survive probably because of some aspect of their ecology. So swiftlets are, are fly pretty high up; they're you know hard to even see as a birder. Um, but they did did suffer these huge population declines, and I think we're through the worst of it. Um, I think the the Micronesian starling actually seems to be rebounding pretty rapidly in these areas of Guam where the, the Air Force has managed to keep the brown tree snakes out. Um, so in the forest of Guam, I, I think... I think the story can only get a little bit better. There are also a couple of species that were um, kind of rescued at the last minute in the in the 80s and brought into captivity. So the Guam rail is a, a flightless bird. 21 individuals were captured before they all disappeared, and they've been the um, the subject of a really successful captive captive breeding program um, that has led to reintroductions on nearby islands. Um, and, and similar with the Guam kingfisher, and so I think um, I think actually as sad as it is that we're closing the book on the the Guam subspecies of the bridal white eye, the the future is is possibly more hopeful. But do you believe enough has been done to protect uh, endemic bird species in the region? Oh, never. I mean, it's uh, it's the U.S. and Fish and Wildlife Service is always always short on money. Um, there's a lot of really dedicated um, dedicated staff members there, and they do really amazing work with the resources they have. Um, but it's a really tricky problem. And um, and for example, I guess uh, over on the island of Rhoda, which is very close to Guam, um, there's a close relative of the Guam subspecies of bridled white eye, the Rhoda bridled white eye. And it's continued to have population declines um, that are not caused by the brown tree snake. And um, there are a number of theories for what, what might be causing that. And there, and there are people studying this, but we, we still don't know. And it, it seems like there's a risk we might lose it, too. Mm. It's been so fascinating, uh, Doctor. I'm wondering, for any future species that we think about with birds specifically, uh, how do we not then have to see the extinction of any other birds in the future? Well, I think, you know, it's it really pays off to invest in early monitoring. So um, we we knew the populations on Guam were, were starting to crash in the 1960s, but we don't quite have the same, we didn't quite have the same uh, systematic ability to track bird populations that we do now. And I think one, one nice thing about birds is, is a lot of people care about them. Um, a lot of people are emotionally invested in the future of bird populations. And so 
bird watchers actually do a great job collecting data that's really useful for scientists to try to understand population trends and, and, and which species are are declining and which species are doing okay. And so by uh, allocating enough resources that we have the time to really look at those data and when we see these early warning signs, go in and try to figure out what is the cause. Is it something like the brown tree snake or is it some other factor? Is it climate change? Um, is it another invasive species? Uh, that gives us the chance to really get in and, and, and maybe try to do some sort of intervention on the ground or figure out what critical habitat needs to be protected um, or in the worst case scenario, start a captive breeding program. Doctor, we just want to say thank you so much for your insight this morning. Really fascinating about this, uh, learning about these two birds. But yeah, hopefully we get to catch up again. All right. Thanks so much. And I love Pacific Beat. Glad yeah. to be on. <laughs> thank you so much. That is Dr. Ethan Link, biologist from Montana University. Just when you thought that rugby league was done for another year, think again. Think again. Catch every tackle and try of the 2023 NRL Pacific Championship. Australia, New Zealand, PNG, Cook Islands, Samoa, Fiji and Tonga. The 2023 NRL Pacific Championships, showcasing some of the best players in the game. Every weekend until November 5 on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You're listening to Pacific Beat, where the top story we're following is Cyclone Lola in Vanuatu. The system is lashing out across the country, with the islands of Sanma, Benama, Malampa and Shifa all on high alert. Authorities are warning of damaging winds, heavy rainfall, mudslides and flash flooding. Evacuation centres have been set up, and Vanuatu's National Disaster Management Office has activated offices in six provinces. And there have been early reports of damage in the north of Vanuatu, but communications seem to be largely down. Joining us this morning, though, Glenn Craig, who is the chairperson of the Vanuatu Business Resilience Council. With that, I say good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, thank you very much, Glenn, for joining us. What is the latest that you're hearing? Uh, well, definitely uh, telecommunications towers. So they're uh, down in the in the middle of um, the Vanuatu Island Group. So in the main provinces uh, where you've got Pentecost and Malakula Island. So that's between the two main townships of, of Vanuatu. That's where the cyclones come right through the middle. And it's currently, it's coming from the from the east and it's gone over Pentecost. It's currently over Malakula. Um, so it, unfortunately, that's sort of the breadbasket of uh, of of Vanuatu. It's where a lot of the produce comes from, especially the, the fresh fruit and vegetables. So they're two of the larger islands. Um, there's not much in the way of significant infrastructure up there in compared to the capital and obviously Luganville Santo. So what we're going to be looking at is is a large issue around crops. Um, so that's going to be the, the big concern that we've got and obviously damage to um, to local government and provincial infrastructure like schools and uh, government facilities that are in those outer islands. Glenn, I suppose given comms are down, how much of a logistical effort is it to coordinate help and assistance? Um, Vanuatu has always been a challenge. That's why it is one of the hardest, uh, one of the hardest uh, countries in the world to respond to a natural disaster because it's spread over eighty-three islands. So it's very, very complicated when you've got to shift 
uh, where you've got to do, say, a food push or get just sheer manpower of getting people into the islands to do rapid assessments afterwards to see what it is. It's quite tricky. Um, generally, it has to happen by boat. You know, it's a long distance between these islands. It's not as though it's a 30-minute boat ride. You're generally looking at, at a 12-hour 12 to 12 hour overnight boat ride to get there. Um, so logistically, it's very challenging. And when you don't have the comms up and, and we don't have a lot in the way of satellite services currently in those islands, it makes life a little bit difficult. We've just been in discussions with organisations like Starlink to come to Vanuatu um, and we are waiting for regulatory approval, which would prove their worth in times like this where you can just point them out a window and then it's immediately back up and running. But that's a conversation for another day, but I'm sure that'll be in the back of the regulator and the government's mind mm. after the third cyclone in seven months. Absolutely. And how are you helping businesses and communities prepare? Um, well, what we what we do is we operate on the on the UN uh, cluster system, so where we have uh, logistics clusters and wash and and health and food security. So what we spe- specifically focus on is ensuring that we can get communications up as fast as possible. The banking sector is uh, we get the banks open as quickly as possible, so people can get money out, um, so they can go and buy the things they need immediately after the disaster for recovery. Um, and we also check to about the utilities companies. Utilities aren't an issue in this one because uh, the, the main power networks are in are in uh, the two areas that aren't affected at this stage. So it's mainly solar power on those other islands or hydro, so it's not too bad. Um, so, so we prepare that way, and obviously all the alerts that go out, we provide a very uh, strong uh, uh, warning system to businesses, and I must admit everyone's been very prepared this time around considering um, the the fact that this is a very unseasonal cyclone, only the seventh cyclone to come in October since 1970. Um, so everyone's in a little bit of shock about it, um, the fact that it has come so early in the season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any ongoing impacts that you do expect? I mean, again, what will the help be needed? Um, look, it's just it, – it, it's just a key – it's a – you, we keep building on things. So we've had the political instability in the country and then we've had the two cyclones uh, uh, back earlier in March of this year and then we've got this one just coming around. And so what happens economically overall, we weren't doing well coming out of COVID. So the country, even though we try and keep upbeat about it, it really, um, the effects of climate change are, are battering us. So there's going to be a lot of focus, I think, coming up into with our COP28 happening in, in Dubai and the loss and damage and uh, discussions around loss and damage funds because Vanuatu really is at the brunt of it. Um, we're not really looking for handouts. It's not what we're about in Vanuatu, but what we are is we're looking for for a little bit of reparation for these issues we're suffering due to the ongoing effects of climate change because I can tell you from a business point of view, it's hard to, when you've got to shut businesses for a week and then try and get them going again, um, it's very, very difficult. And, and we're a tourism-related economy. So from a tourism point of view, airline, yeah, there's no flights coming in because the, the, the uh, flights are all grounded. Um, it, it just makes it tough to get back up and running simply. So definitely you're saying this does further stress the need for a loss in damage fund to help Pacific Islands specifically uh, with recovery? Oh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
yeah, it's it's a huge thing. It'll be it'll be central focus, I think, of all the pieces when we when we go to when we go to uh, the COP twenty eight, and it really is going to accelerate the talk. It was disappointing last week when the loss and damage transition talks um, ended as they did, and looking at giving the funding to the World Bank, which no one really wants to do. So there's going to be a whole lot of um, in, in on your nose discussions. I think that's going to be coming out. They're going to be led by people like Honourable uh, Minister of Climate Change Ralph Rigginvanu and um, leaders in the Pacific that will be having those strong conversations. But it, the facts speak for themselves. You know, we've three cyclones above Cat 4 um, in, in less than seven months. It's just, you know, it's very hard for any country to try and uh, operate um, any sort of business and communities and have a decent livelihood when this keeps happening. Mm. Glenn, I know, of course, you know, Vanuatu is still in recovery after the twin cyclones, Kevin and Judy. What extra pressure does this put on recovery efforts? Um, well, it 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 it, it becomes a, a a bit habit forming, um, and that's that's what you don't want. It's hard to build an economic um, powerhouse, and and the Vanuatu government over the last three years has been trying to transition into more of an agricultural based economy, rightly or wrongly. Um, we we don't have any particular views about that at the Vanuatu Business Resilience Council, but but we we always think that we are predominantly a, a tourism related. Um, sector, but it's hard to attract investment in a country when you're continually having uh, issues relating to climate change. So if you're looking for the large organisations like Hyatt or Hilton or Starwoods to open up properties and develop and invest in the country in the tourism sector, it is hard when you've got to you've got to really have that extra expense of climate resilient infrastructure that needs to be built. Um, so there's that's I think is going to be a focus in in, in trying to attract that type of investment. And looking for support from our regional partners to to try and coordinate and get that finance coming through that needs to build that type of infrastructure, and that will make uh, the businesses more resilient if they know that they can that we can that we can deal with these shocks of ongoing cyclones. We're forecast to receive between seven and fourteen in the Pacific this this uh, this season. Uh, finally, I do want to ask. I mean, right there as you are on the ground, where will the efforts need to be focused, though? Uh, certainly, it'll be rapid assessments in those islands, and it'll be seeing what the damage is to those crops, and 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 it'll be immediately looking after the people on the ground to ensure that they've uh, got enough sus- substance. So I'd say it's going to be a food push. Um, there'll be a food push in making sure that those areas are, are going to get what they need in terms of of food and 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 medical supplies immediately. Glenn, we just want to say thank you very much for your time and letting us know what is happening there. Uh, all the best, though, for our people there in Vanuatu. Thank you. Appreciate it. No worries. That is Glenn Craig, the chairman of the Vanuatu Business Resilience Council. Well, before we let you go, uh, we have, we sorry, we want to check in with Nandraki Weather to find out more about Cyclone Lola's expected movement throughout the day. So we've got Neville Cooper's on the line. Good morning, Neville. Hi, good morning, Aggie. Yeah, again, what is the latest there on Cyclone Lola? So uh, after uh, going through a remarkable process yesterday, it was truly uh, astounding how quickly um, the cyclone intensified and reaching a very strong Category 5 uh, intensity uh, up through the northern islands of Vanuatu uh, late yesterday. It is starting to weaken a tad now. It's down to a Category 4 system and it has also started to move a little quicker now away to the southwest. So it's transitioning through the... The, the northern islands between Santo and uh, Ifate, um, 
on a southwest track that's going to take it out into the western part of the, uh, the eastern part of the Coral Sea in the next um, six to 12 hours. And then it will track down towards the uh, central or, or western parts of New Caledonia um, tomorrow and uh, into early Friday. So um, it's starting to move now. It had been prevented from really moving very far due to a very strong blocking high that was just to the northeast of New Zealand, but that's um, going to sort of slowly squeeze away and, and the cyclone should find its path southward, given um, the, the, I mean, the, the fundamental issue here is that uh, tropical cyclones do one thing and one thing only, which is to transport heat from the equator to the pole. Um, normally, that sort of uh, heat transfer process in the global uh, weather pattern is done through cold fronts and to a certain degree by ocean currents. But when there's just too much heat in the tropics and you've got to get it out of there quick, then cyclones are Mother Nature's fastest and most efficient way of transporting that heat out of the, the warm tropics to the cooler poles. And that's that's why they form. So keeping that in mind, uh, we know that this uh, system wants to move southward. Um, it's been stopped from doing so for a little while, but now it's on track to move away and as it heads south, it will encounter less favourable conditions and we do expect it to, to weaken significantly over the next 24 to 48 hours. Just wondering, is there any other Pacific Islands that could be at risk, though? Oh, look, there's a, there's a possibility that um, New Caledonia may have some minor impacts later on. It's probably going to pass close to, if not directly over, Grand Terre, the main island, but um, by that stage, we do expect that it will have weakened significantly and um, maybe a, a Category 1 or perhaps even just a tropical depression as it approaches uh, the main islands of New Caledonia and perhaps um, a little stronger if it gets close to the loyalty group, which is just to the north of, of the main island of uh, New Caledonia between uh, New Caledonia, Grand Terre and uh, the southern islands of Vanuatu. Uh, Neville, Lola is the first pre-season cyclone in decades and it's the earliest Category 5 cyclone on record in the Southern Hemisphere. Does it give us any inkling towards the season ahead and what's expected? Yeah, well, look, um, I was just listening to your, your previous speaker and, and a lot of what he was saying there is um, is uh, tremendously important information for everyone to consider here that um, this is a, a major economic uh, impact uh, for a small country like Vanuatu. And as was noted, this is the the third Category 4 or stronger cyclone um, since um, uh, in the last um, 12 months, um, perhaps even the last eight months. So, you know, country, small countries just cannot uh, put up with these sorts of things um, on such a frequent basis. So given that we're heading into an El Nino and given that um, all of the signs are pointing towards uh, uh, this being a very busy cyclone season, um, and the fact that officially the cyclone season hasn't even started yet and we already have one Cat 5 under our belt, it doesn't um, bode well for the, uh, the coming summer ahead for, um, for many of the Pacific Island countries and in particular those countries that um, lay uh, in the central and, and even the eastern part of the Pacific. So countries which haven't experienced significant cyclones recently such as Tonga, uh, Cook Islands, uh, Samoa, um, uh, Niue could start to see um, some significant uh, weather 
uh, over coming months and the risk of cyclones is going to increase through that region as, as we know they do during El Nino. So pretty much everyone from the Solomons and Vanuatu east to the Cooks and even French Polynesia um, are in the firing line potentially and we do expect to see a much busier season than we've seen recently after three uh, three La Nina years. So um, I think what, what we need to take out of this is that um, this is really just the introduction to the 2023-2024 cyclone season and there's potentially much more to come and uh, the impacts um, uh, if these systems form close to um, major population centres in the islands um, have the potential to be um, beyond devastating. In fact, um, you know, for small island countries, they can knock economies back 10, 10 years easily um, in terms of the recovery process after an event. And just quickly want to say, has there been any other warnings that have come through in regards to the tracking of Cyclone Lola? Look, at this stage, um, pretty much all of the the uh, forecasting agencies that are, are monitoring this system are in, in good agreement. Um, one of the, I guess, one of the good things that's come out of um, uh, our, our um, much uh, increasingly uh, uh, in-depth study of, of climate and weather systems in the Pacific is that the models, the computer models are behaving a lot better and so we have a lot more confidence in the, the forecasts of, uh, that the computer models are producing. So that pretty much everything lines up at the moment. There's really no, no outliers. Everyone's in pretty good agreement with how this system will behave. Um, it is going to move into cooler and uh, cooler waters and, and less favourable um, atmospheric um, patterns over coming uh, days. So it is going to weaken. Um, and I think everybody thinks that that's the, how it's going to pan out. So mm. at this stage, not much more to uh, to be said other than to watch and wait for it to slowly weaken. Appreciate your time this morning, Neville. Thank you for keeping track of what is happening there in Vanuatu. That is Neville Coop of Nandaraki Weather. And that brings us to the end of the show. We'll be back again same time, 6am PNG time tomorrow, but you can hear us 3pm PNG time this afternoon. Uh, Pacific Beat comes to you from the islands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.